Good morning, everyone. Dr. Stillman here with another Monday Masterclass. And today we have a question from a premium subscriber over on Substack who asks, and I'm going to paraphrase the question so that it makes a little bit more sense when said out loud. So this question is about fungal overgrowth, parasites, other, let's just say, unwanted guests. Will these take care of themselves if heavy metals are reduced? What strategies do you have for eliminating mercury? Is there a protocol that would help such as eating clay, taking chlorella, selenium, et cetera? I think silica is good for aluminum. Are there also steps to take to reduce fungus besides heavy metal detox? This is of course, after the basic fundamentals are already done. They also ask about amalgam tattoos on gums, which is a whole other story. Does a heavy metal protocol remove the mercury or must something else be done? Okay, so let's unpack this question. This is actually a very, very common sequence of questions for me to get in a consultation with somebody regarding many different causes of illness that people have heard about and told about and have identified as potential sources of their problem. Okay. But we have to step back and ask ourselves, first of all, how do we know that any of these problems are in the picture, right? Fungal overgrowth, parasites, heavy metal toxicity, I always step back to what I look at as the model through which I view medical care, health and wellness, right? So long as we create a healthy environment for the person, good health will naturally emerge. And this is the consequence of all the aspects of their health that have to do with their wellness, their diet, their lifestyle, their environment, and so on and so forth. I'm going to start with the fungal overgrowth piece because there's just too much here for me to do justice to everything but we're going to look at fungal overgrowth and ask ourselves, how does this apply more broadly to things like parasites, heavy metal toxicity as causes of illness, okay? So without further ado, let's jump into what is essentially a subtopic of this, which is, all right, yeast and candida and fungal overgrowth. So I have to give you guys a little bit of background here. If you don't understand the background and the history of integrative medicine, you really don't understand why people are saying what they're saying and what they mean when they say certain things. And this leads to an enormous amount of confusion. If you jump into the world of uh, yeast, candida, whatever you want to call it, overgrowth, sensitivity, et cetera, you'll find that the conventional medical paradigm views this as hogwash and quackery. And they point to the fact that it's very hard to substantiate that any of these people have significant total body burdens of candida. And many people with significant total body burdens of candida don't have symptoms. Okay. You step over into the integrative, natural, holistic, uh, complementary paradigm, and they will tell you scores of testimonials or share with you scores of testimonials and stories of people who reinvented their health by following a low candida, anti candida, low yeast anti-yeast, whatever you want to call it, diet, okay? Where did this start? I would make a strong case for this starting and entering the collective consciousness with the book, The East Connection by William G. Crook. He was a physician. He actually has been published in, in journal articles. You can go read his actual real words about this in the medical literature. The book was extremely controversial. It was a controversial because he's, he made a lot of claims and packed it up with a lot of testimonials, but he didn't demonstrate it with the kind of rigor that people expect if one is going to create some kind of dominant medical paradigm. Leaving aside the problems with reductionistic thinking that are inherent to the conventional medical world that require exhaustive levels of evidence, 
Um, let's dive into why a lot of people find value in this. And in order to talk about the value people find in it, first we have to talk about what it is, okay? So to make a really long story short, he found that there was a connection between yeast in his patients and improvements on a yeast-free or low yeast diet, which then became known as the candida diet or the yeast-free diet. So what is the candida diet? The candida diet is a low sugar anti-inflammatory diet that promotes good gut health and eliminates the sugars that feed a candida overgrowth. The diet includes non-starchy vegetables, some low sugar fruits, non-glutinous grains, some dairy products, and fermented food. That right there seems like an innocuous statement. It is an incredibly, incredibly powerful statement about a radical dietary change. Now, what we're going to talk about in the rest of the video is the dizzying number of different factors that can explain why this diet will produce clinical results for many people, okay? And I, I want you guys to, to realize that I'm trying to break people out of the thinking of, I went on a yeast-free or candida-free diet. I got better, therefore I had candida or yeast. It's very important to understand that there are a multitude of factors that go into anyone's recovery from a chronic illness, almost too numerous to even possibly list. When we look at something like this, what impact would it have on your body, your physiology? What would the nutrient and macronutrient, micronutrient ratios and changes be if you changed to this diet? So it says non-starchy vegetables, okay? Non-starchy vegetables, greens, alliums, garlic, leeks, shallots, scallions, brassicas, foods generally recognized by most people as being exceedingly healthy, full of sulfur, full of micronutrients, full of fiber, right? Some low sugar fruits, fruits that do not have a high sugar content. I guarantee you, you dig into this diet, people are going to say you've got to moderate your sugar, sugar consumption. So we're immediately switching from a potentially high starch, high sugar, high glucose, high fructose, high carbohydrate load to a much lower carbohydrate load in the diet. Non-glutinous grains. So these are probably heritage grains. Many of them are probably wrongly labeled grains. They're actually pseudo grains. They have a high protein content. They have lots of micronutrients and they're not common in the diet. Okay. Which means that all the problems people develop with food allergies are less likely to be the case with these grains. Some dairy products, I'm not going to get into that, but some dairy, they obviously are moderating that and fermented foods. Now, what are they not saying here that I actually think is very important and is practically speaking implied by what they're saying in the diet? There's going to be lots of protein. There's going to be no little to no processed food and refined carbs. And that right there is a big part of why a lot of people feel better on a diet like this. This diet, in not so many words, is pushing someone into a low-carb, high-fat, moderate-to-high-protein diet. When you get into this world, what you'll find time and again is that people will report variable results. Oftentimes, details of execution matter a great deal. They'll switch from one version of a low-carb, high-fat, moderate-protein diet to another version. Let's say they take out... Um, uh, any grains or pseudo grains and all carbohydrates and all of a sudden it works for them. Let's say they add in some nuts and seeds and all of a sudden it works. Let's say they actually completely eliminate dairy and all of a sudden it works. So this is an incredibly wide range of different factors. And I want to impress upon you that because there's such a range of factors, it's impossible 
to take this diet and study it in a reductionistic way, which is why you'll find people saying this is amazing, it's so good, but then you'll find conventional medical uh, physicians, medical centers, doctors, scientists saying this is all pseudoscience and quackery. The reality is it works for a lot of people. We're going to dig into a little bit more about why it works later, but just know this is a radical dietary change. Anytime you do that, you're going to get some people who respond wonderfully and you're going to get other people who don't respond at all. Okay. Or they may even have a negative reaction or a negative experience. What is the yeast-free diet? This is another article on this just to impress upon you guys what exactly we're talking about here. They recommend cutting the following foods from the diet. Potatoes. I assume they also mean root vegetables, but that's a big group of foods. Processed meats, canned fruits, added sugars, sugar alcohols, and disaccharides. You also eliminate grains and other gluten-containing products, beer, sweet wine, liqueurs, and seeds containing so-called mucilaginous fibers are out, as are additives and preservatives like maltodextrin, pectin, and guar gums. Long story short, once one of the things that everyone agrees on in the health and wellness space, processed food is bad for you for a long, long list of reasons. Refined carbohydrates, processed meats are also bad for you. What is this diet doing? It's eliminating a lot of junk. So there's many different reasons we may improve upon this diet. One of the reasons I touched on earlier is the effect on proteins and amino acids. Many people don't understand that the amount of protein they eat and their protein sources will have a real effect on their brain, their brain function, their hormones, their neurotransmitters. We know this very well from the literature. And I'm going to read this paper, which is old, but no less relevant or real today than it was almost 50 years ago when it was published. Serotonin synthesis depends largely on the brain concentrations of L-tryptophan, its precursor amino acid. This relationship appears to be physiologic when brain tryptophan levels vary because of insulin secretion or meal ingestion, corresponding alterations occur in the rate of serotonin formation. Translation, when you eat more tryptophan, you will get more serotonin, okay? Moving on, the synthesis of catecholamines, i.e. dopamine, norepinephrine, in the brain also varies with the availability of the precursor amino acid L-tyrosine. Single injections of this amino acid increase brain tyrosine levels and accelerate brain catechol synthesis, while injections of a competing neutral amino acid, such as lysine or tryptophan, reduce brain tyrosine and its rate of conversion to dopamine. Translation, what you eat does translate into a real difference in the levels of neurotransmitters in your brain. This is why you'll often see huge changes in people's physiology, their function, their health, when they make a radical shift in their diet from certain proteins to other proteins, from more protein to less protein, from less protein to more protein. There's a myriad of factors here, but one of the things you'll find in people who go low carb is what are they doing? Generally speaking, they're often substituting higher protein foods in for the foods that have just been removed, which I just listed in the previous articles, okay? And this explains an enormous amount of why people feel better. It's also why for the vast majority of people who I see in my practice, when I examine their diet, I see that they're on a relatively low protein diet, and most of them are under a significant amount of stress. Because they're under stress, they have a higher need, in my opinion, and experience for protein. And so when they, we increase their protein intake, they see big improvements in how they look, how they feel, and how they function. And that's why I lead with a higher protein diet. You can review past Monday masterclasses on this content where I talk about 
perils and pitfalls and problems with people going out and saying you should all eat low protein or you should all eat high protein and so on and so forth. Okay. A couple of old but great references that will really, um, they're very thought provoking books. They're very, very controversial books in their own way. But you'll find when you get into actually taking care of people, whether you're a coach, a physician, a dietitian, a whatever kind of practitioner you are, you'll find that these concepts are extremely valuable and extremely powerful in taking care of people. Nutrition in Your Mind, The Psychochemical Response, is a very old book by a gentleman named George Watson. He was a PhD researcher in Southern California in the 1960s and 70s. And he found that changing the macronutrient content of someone's diet could have an incredibly powerful effect on their mood, their behavior, their thought processes, et cetera. And so he started to use this clinically. Countless people since then have commented on the fact that changing someone's diet can have a radical impact on their mind. But it is incredibly difficult to reproduce this on a case-by-case -case basis because there are so many factors that have to be taken into account. What I would submit to you in the context of, say, fungal overgrowth is simply that when people make a radical shift in their macros, not only are they going to alter the composition of their microbiome by changing the fuel mix that's going into the, the GI tract itself, but they're also going to change the mix of nutrients coming into their cells, which their cells will then burn for fuel. And we may surmise, I think it's reasonable, that this has a whole host of effects on their physiology that cannot be explained by one thing, such as, say, fungal overgrowth. And that's why this book really shaped my thinking about health and wellness. And I don't see many people giving a better treatise or explanation of these factors and principles than George Watson, which is a reason why we pay very close attention to someone's macros. In fact, it's in my rubric of reasons for therapeutic failure. When I see people in my practice who are not getting the results they want, one of the first things I'll do is look at their macros and say, are you eating the macros we've actually recommended to you? Very rarely are people actually eating what is optimal for them in their macros. That's another story. Another reason why many people improve upon these diets is the simple reality of hidden food allergies and sensitivities. Without getting too deeply into this, and I've written about this a lot at my Substack blog, uh, one of my favorite posts on this is for premium subscribers, and it's about allergy testing. It's like facts or it's like myths and legends about allergy testing. If you put in allergy testing in my Substack, it'll come up. And I've spent a lot of time studying this because it's so challenging in practice. One of the things I've found is that if you don't get rid of something that someone is sensitive or allergic to, and I'm not going to split hairs today about what the difference is between those two terms, you will not get clinical progress. And this book gives you chapter and verse on all the problems people experience in life with their health that relate to food allergies and sensitivities. I know it's about apparently children. I know it's about, uh, it's written by a pediatrician, but the truth is many of the anecdotes in this story relate to not only children, but their parents. And even if they're not, even if they're specifically regarding children, they're just as relevant for adults. So even though I'm not a pediatrician, I see a very limited number of, of, ch of children in my practice. This kind of book or this book, this book in particular, gives you an enormous amount of insight into how allergies and sensitivities are actually driving a lot of illness. What happens when we go on something like a yeast-free, 
or a candida cleanse diet is you're having a radical shift in the ingredients you're using. You're most likely moving away from processed foods, which may have dozens of ingredients each to a more single ingredient diet bought in the produce section, the meat section, the fish section, where there's only one ingredient in what you're eating. And then you're combining four, five, six, five to 10 ingredients, let's call it in order to make a whole meal. This is really important because for all you know, the reason that you stopped having the symptoms you had when you were on a uh, regular, typical standard American diet disappeared when you went to a yeast-free or, or candida-free diet because you eliminated something that you were reacting to. Now, people will th say, yes, but Dr. Stillman, it's because the candida induces leaky gut and the leaky gut then causes the allergies. I'm not going to get into that. There's lots of science behind that, um, but it's also um, immaterial. The reality is a lot of people cannot eat this very restrictive diet and just by eliminating what they're reacting to get the same clinical results. And that's part of why the diet works on a very broad level and a very, very broad and um, non-specific way. It helps get rid of a lot of the things that people tend to be reacting to in our modern American diets. And last, alkalize or die, superior health through proper alkaline acid balance. One of the things you'll notice on in the candida or yeast-free diets is that they tend to be heavier in the alkalinizing foods and they severely limit and restrict acidifying foods with the exception of protein. And this is why I said earlier, you can do a diet like the candida free or, or candida cleanse or, or yeast free diet in different ways and get radically different results. You know, technically something like a carnivore diet would fit the bill for yeast free candida cleanse diet, but it might be very acidifying depending upon which cuts you use and how you prepare them and also your unique individual biochemical individuality as Roger Williams would have said. Likewise, you could go from a standard American diet onto a diet rich in uh, non-starchy vegetables and uh, vegetable juices and low in protein and even low in fat and find that you got great results and it's because you altered, I would argue your pH which affects your mineral balance. It affects changes, or uh, I should say excretion of minerals and heavy metals in your urine. There's tons of effects that these diets have on people's health. And that's why when I get a question uh, like this, and people say, if we do all these things, like what are your protocols for this? What are your protocols for that? I don't lean very heavily on protocols for things. I help people to create healthy diets lifestyles and environments in which they will thrive and from which good health will naturally emerge. And that really isn't as simple as just handing someone a protocol. Do I have some protocols I'll use? Yes, but I always use them in the greater context of helping teach someone or teaching someone how to be the healthiest version of themselves, or as I like to call it, the healthiest person that they know. So, other elements of this question that I want to uh, comment on because I did mention them at the beginning and I want to do them justice. So on the same question he asked about parasites and heavy metals, and basically the, the, the overarching theme here was if we do the fundamentals, will all these potential contributing factors uh, resolve? And the answer in, in short is basically yes. But before we conclude that they were the cause in the first place, we have to ask ourselves, how do we know that these issues are even in the clinical picture, right? And in my experience, and from, from in my opinion, 
what we see when we do hair testing, mineral balancing, nutritional balancing, as Dr. Eck would have called it, we get great results. We see the minerals balancing out in the hair. We see people having great clinical results. And that's the key for people getting progress on the issues that they then attribute to yeast, candida, parasites, heavy metals, et cetera. Uh, as well, I will mention that with clays, with um, powders, binders, et cetera, I think people here are playing with a little bit of fire without maybe knowing that it's hot. Because if you're using binders, clays, zeolites, whatever, you may be using them without realizing that you're missing a key element. The other day I saw a very low selenium level in someone who I've been taking care of for some time and who I've been hounding to get testing done. And finally she did the testing and finally we found, look, lo and behold, the selenium level is extremely low and it can explain many of her symptoms. That's why we started to add a selenium supplement. And again, I don't have simple protocols. I don't have single products that I recommend. We treat the whole person. We take care of the whole person. We fix the whole diet, the whole environment, the whole lifestyle. And that's how you get really great over the top out of this world results. So hopefully that helps demystify and, and explain to people why they see these clinical results on these diets. If you've got questions and you'd like me to answer them, become a premium subscriber at my Substack. I will be devoting the Monday masterclass from now on to answering questions from my premium subscribers. And if you're a premium subscriber watching this, thank you for your premium subscription. I do appreciate it and feel free to post more questions in the comments. I will not be able to get to all of them because of the volume that I receive. However, I will do my best to cover the ones that I think are most pertinent and most helpful for people based on what I'm seeing in the comments and what I'm hearing from people in consultations. Thanks everyone for watching. Have a great day and make sure that you are on the Stillman Wellness newsletter so you can tune into our complimentary Thursday morning masterclass where Jim and Laird and I talk about critical topics in health and wellness every Thursday, 10 a.m. Eastern time, totally free to the list just because we like you guys and want to make sure that you guys have success in your health and wellness. Thanks for watching. Have a great day and don't forget to get outside.